prophet with bold faith, but as we talked about last week, we know that he wasn't just born, it didn't just materialize in a vacuum, that he was actually in a process of training, faith training. And it was forged through rigorous obedience and life experience, including times of testing and trials. Quickly recount, what, is, what did Elijah go through? He confronts King Ahab to, right off the bat. So first of all, he's putting his life on the line. You go into the presence of the king. The king can wipe you out right then and there if he's not happy with you. And Elijah was not coming to uh, tell him what a great job he was doing. Elijah was confronting him, telling him what he was not doing well, idol worship. He, he then goes on to say, king, we're going to put the whole nation into drought into time of starvation and famine because there's going to be no water. And then he takes off and he goes and he camps out at the, at the brook Kareth. And what happens? Uh, well, the logical conclusion, when there's a drought and there's no rain, the brook that you're beside dries up. And you get to watch that happen day after day and wonder how God's going to take care of you. And how does God take care of Elijah? He sends him to a starving widow and says, hey, Elijah, go ask that widow for her last meal and uh, well, I'll take care of you that way. And then to top it all off, he's with the widow and uh, her son, and the son gets gravely ill and dies, and he goes through the horrific tragedy of a child's death and what to do with that. So that's his training ground. But like I said, training is, uh, is only for a period. It's intended for a purpose, and Elijah's time of training in 1 Kings chapter 18 is over. Now that's not to say that it's completely done because as we continue in this story throughout the summer, we're going to find out that Elijah goes back into training later on, which for those of us who are like a little bit older in life, we've come to realize that, yeah, seasons, you are never done training. God is never done with us. And just when we think we've figured it out, ah, then we get to go back into training, and that's going to happen to Elijah. But for now, he's learned through a lot of experience, and he knows this much. If God says he's going to do something, whether it's impossible to us or seemingly impossible, God will do it. And so Elijah is ready to reemerge into public ministry. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Probably one of the most exciting chapters uh, in, in all of the Bible. Like, spoiler alert. Um, so 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Later on, in the third year of the drought, okay, so we've three years since he confronted King Ahab, the Lord said to Elijah, go present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I, I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So the next verses, I won't read them all because it's a long chapter, remind us how bad the droughts become. Uh, it, it, it describes the fact that the countryside is scattered with uh, rotting uh, animals, rotting herds of cattle and whatever else they used uh, and had and kept as farmers in those days. And, uh, and so King Ahab and his servant uh, Obadiah are going out to try and find a spring somewhere to water some of the king's horses so that they won't be the last things to die. And Elijah meets Obadiah in, out in the countryside. And he convinces 
Obadiah to go back, find King Ahab, and tell him that he wants to have a meeting with him. And as you can imagine, that meeting was not pleasant. So let's pick up in verse 16. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So, it's really you, you troublemaker of Israel. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you've refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. So in today's language, Elijah's basically saying, hey, it's not me, it's you. Okay? You and your wife, you're the problem. You still don't get it. But he's straight up with the king. The king is the reason all the livestock in the countryside are laying rotting away. Can you imagine the stench? Like, got it, like it's real. Like, there's dead animals everywhere. People are starving. Uh, it's not like today where the SBCA just comes and picks them up and takes care of them. And no, I mean, it's, it's like a real thing happening. God's given King Ahab and his family three years to figure this out. Three years to heed the warning and the prophecy of Elijah and he's given them all that time to save face repent turn around and cry out to God to no avail the royal family continues in their way of worshiping Baal and now the time has come to expose Ahab's evil and to expose the idol worship and it's going to happen in public it's going to happen uh, in a place that was once dedicated to the worship of God and is now dedicated to the worship of Baal. And it's going to happen where everybody can see it. And as we said last week many times, this should be telling us that there's absolutely no question in God's mind who has the power, who's in control, who really is the God that makes it rain, who really is the God that does these things. So when it comes to a showdown, like we're going to see on the mountain, God has full confidence in what he's asking Elijah to do. So Elijah requests that all the main players, he doesn't want to leave any doubt. He wants to make sure everybody's there. King Ahab, bring them all. Bring all 450 of the false prophets of Baal. Bring all the 400 who worship Asherah. Bring everybody, bring the whole nation. I want everybody there. Verse 19, now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who probably from reading the text didn't show up, uh, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer are you going to wait? Like he just cuts to the chase. How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions, people? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. The people were completely silent. So you've got 450 prophets of Baal. You've got the entire muffled nation of Israel. And Elijah basically calls them out and says it's time to make a choice. Like live your life. Put your money where your mouth is. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. So bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal can choose. 
Notice in all these things that Elijah sets out, he always gives the advantage to the prophets of Baal. Let the prophets of Baal choose whichever one of the bulls that they want to cut into pieces, lay it on the wood on their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the, wo- lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And so all the people agree. In other words, Elijah's got their attention. Ah, okay. And I'm sure that the prophets of Baal are thinking, this is a win-win situation for us. We get to go first. We do our thing. Baal shows up, does the fire thing. We win. If nothing happens, then Elijah steps up, and surely nothing's going to happen for him. It's just Elijah, like... And then when nothing happens for him, then King Ahab can step in and cut his head off. And we're done. So if I'm a prophet of Baal, win-win. Let's get on with it. So it's a standoff. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. For there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, call in the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls, they placed it on the altar, then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime. So what's that? Four or five hours, depending on when they started? Shouting, oh Baal, answer us. But there is no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made, because they're probably trying to get Baal's attention. About noontime, Elijah probably stretched, And started mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed at the prophets of Baal. For surely he is a god, isn't he? Ah, Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's gone off to the washroom and he's relieving himself. It says that right in the scriptures. I'm not sure how the Hebrew lays it out exactly. But that's the translation. Or maybe he's away on a trip. Or maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to waken him. Dance more. Shout louder. So what do they do? They shout louder. And following their normal customs, they pull out the heavy artillery, which is pretty sad. They start to cut themselves because they think that blood will be what will finally bring out their God. And so they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. They've gone from first thing in the morning to evening. And they have done everything they could. And their bull sitting in pieces on the altar, untouched. So they fail miserably. Well, now the camera shifts, right? Okay, they're probably thinking, didn't work for us, not going to work for Elijah. We zoom in on Elijah. Nothing happens for him. Then it's back to 450 plus the king versus one. Those are good odds if you're in the 450. Not so good if you're the one. But listen to Elijah's confidence and his anticipation. So nothing happened. Nothing. Hours and hours and hours. That's a lot of time to allow Elijah to build up some doubt. Then Elijah calls to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. So remember, Mount Carmel used to be a place where they worshipped God. Now he's got to rebuild that altar. 
and he rebuilds it with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, even though Israel is split into two nations, which is not pleasing to God. So he makes a statement there, but that's another sermon for another time. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars of water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Because when you want to start a fire, that's what you do. You douse it first. Saturate it, right? After they had done this, he said, do it again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. Let's leave no doubt. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench. He had the people's attention before. Do you think that they're more zoned in now than they were then? They are sitting on the edge of their seats thinking this guy is a complete nut bar. What on earth is going to happen? What is he going to do next? And what does Elijah do? Don't miss this. Verse 36, underline this. After all this stuff, after everything that went on that day, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar with his blowtorch, his acetylene flamethrower, ready. No, what does he do? He prayed. He's got 450 prophets, the king, the entire nation of Israel watching him. And what does he do? This is a time for action. He prayed. Oh, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I've done all this at your command, not out of my own stuff. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me, why? So I look good? So everybody heralds me as a great prophet? Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Nothing to do with Elijah. This is about Yahweh, Israel's God. He's the author of all this stuff. He's the one who said, pour water on there three times. He's the one, like he orchestrated all this stuff for a very specific purpose. Everything that's been happening for the last three years has been to culminate in this time and for this purpose. And it's God saying, I want my people to be with me. Not with Baal. Not off on some stupid idol worship thing that is leading them to death and destruction. Everything has been designed by God to re-engage relationship with his people. And he wants the Israelites to know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is the same God that your ancestors worshipped and talked about. This is the same God that's always, always, always been faithful to you. This is the same God who has three years worth of mercy not wiping you out. This is the same God who wants to be in relationship with you. Who is this God? Have you forgotten? People, have you forgotten me? Well, let God remind you. Verse 38. 
immediately the flamethrower from heaven. Oh my goodness, men. Sorry, ladies too, but men especially, like we like flamethrowers, like anything like really supercharged, like this is the flamethrower from heaven. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it even licked up the water in the trench. The intensity of that fire makes any campfire men, any bonfire that you have stood back with your kids and said, ah, that's a pretty impressive fire. Like, <laughs> it, like, and not to put light on it, but even the wildfires that we're experiencing in the province and interior pale in comparison to the intensity of this fire. It's so hot that it instantly vaporizes the meat. Oh, okay. It instantly vaporizes the wood. Yeah, well, wood's meant to burn. It instantly vaporizes the rocks, the 12 stones that he used to build the altar. Poof, gone. It vaporizes the water and the dust. Every fire I have ever made, and I've made many, and I've had some good bonfires, has always left ash. Not this one. That's how hot it is. I'd say as the smoke cleared on the scene, but when the fire is that hot, there's no smoke. It's literally that hot. So as the heat dissipates and everybody gets their wits about them, what just happened here? Two things emerge. One, the people of Israel worship. Two, the 450 prophets of Baal are stunned, and not in a good way stunned. The pendulum of allegiance immediately, rightfully swings to Elijah's God. He's answered that prayer. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground, cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. They've been leading you astray. So the people seized them. Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and had them killed there. Is there any doubt after this showdown who is God? No. But we do still have the small matter of rain. God sent fire from heaven, but they're still in a drought. They still haven't had it rain yet. And Elijah prophesied that it wouldn't rain until he said and so we need to address that matter. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, I'm sure after he gloated and patted himself on the back, no, he didn't. He said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Hmm. Well, that's right, Elijah. We all just saw what happened. That fire was intense. That was amazing. So if God's going to do that, yeah. Uh, maybe King Ahab should head off and start building an ark because the rain that's going to come, I mean, that's going to be intense. So let's get the show on the road, God. That's sort of how my humanness would probably be kicking in at that moment. I'd be like, yeah. And what does Elijah do? Verse 42, so Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed low to the ground 
and prayed with his face between his knees. Time for action, Elijah. The rainstorm's coming. You said it. And he goes off and he prays. If ever there was a time that he could have just puffed out his chest and said, finally, three years, vindication. Instead, he goes off by himself, out of the limelight. He humbles himself. He doesn't even feel like he can look up at God. He puts his head down on the ground between his knees. What do you want to do next, God? We've got this matter of rain. We talked about it three years ago. How do you want to take care of this? What... Now's the time, but how? Elijah's faith training is paying off dividends in these moments. Then Elijah said to his servant, go, look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Back in verse 41, Elijah told King Ahab, get going, eat something because I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Now his servant goes out and looks off the top of the mountain well you need clouds seven times elijah told him to go and look again training is paying off if god says it's going to happen it's going to happen if it doesn't happen the first time it's going to happen the second time if it doesn't happen you keep going and you keep listening what are you doing god finally the seventh time his servant told him i saw a little teeny weeny itsy bitsy cloud the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. I hear a mighty rainstorm. Hold on, this doesn't work. For a mighty rainstorm, God, we need, like, we need prairie-sized clouds coming in, right? Those of you from the prairies, you know. You can see them in Saskatchewan. You look to Manitoba, and you know it's going to rain tomorrow. You can see it coming. Listen to the mark of someone whose faith has been in training, someone who continues to go deeper and deeper in his relationship, in his trust of God. He heard a mighty rainstorm coming, not because he could hear the thunder and lightning, I think because he heard the whisper of God's voice saying, Elijah, now's the time. There's a mighty rainstorm coming. He, he knew the rain was coming, not because there was this little tiny cloud off in the sky, but because he had been on his knees And he had heard God say, the cloud's coming. Elijah, this is a man of training in his faith. He sees that little cloud. We'd be like, I don't know that that's quite going to cut it. And listen to him. He shouts, hurry to his servant. Go tell Ahab, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain's going to stop you. Like it, that little teeny cloud out there, that's going to. And soon the sky was black with clouds a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm and ahab left quickly for jezreel then the lord gave special strength to elijah he tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of jezreel where jezebel was Only God can write that. Like, everything is so amazing already. He's he's got the king's attention, I think. 
And then for whatever reason, like, I, I don't, maybe there's got to be some humor in it. Maybe a little bit of reveling in it. God's like, hey, Elijah, sprint. Sprint, flash, go. Like, here's the king in his chariot, right? I mean, he's the king. He leads the way. Like, and he's going. The rain's coming. He's like full on bore with his horses in his chariot. And here's Elijah. You know, Michael with his medals. And there's King Ahab in the chariot. Are you kidding me? Like, really? It's like one final exclamation from God to say, hey, King Ahab, you might be a king, but I am. I am. I am king of kings, and I am lord of lords. And anything you can do, I can do better. I'm the one true God. I'm the God that every generation is called to bow down and worship. I am the God of Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth, in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other God. Do you get that, King Ahab? But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That's what the God of the Old Testament says. That's what he's saying as Elijah goes running past the chariot as an exclamation mark. And what does the same God of the New Testament say to us? Matthew 22. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, everything in the Old Testament, and all the demands of the prophets, Elijah included, are based on these two commandments. Friends, everything we're reading about in the story of Elijah is boiled down in these two passages. This mighty prophet with bold faith Everything that he's about is to remind us, to tell us, to shout at us when we need it, to whisper to us when we need it. Love the Lord your God, no matter what. Be in relationship with him and don't let anything, anything get in the way of that. Oh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have an Asherah pole in my backyard, so I'm good. I, I, none of my friends are prophets of Baal, so I'm good. Come on, we all know, me included, stuff gets in the way between me and God all the time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's intended to point us in one direction to God. It's intended to focus us over and over on the reality that God wants to be in relationship with me, with us, his people. And he is always, always faithful in that relationship. And it's intended to align all of us, all of our hearts in worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what the story of Elijah is all about. Yes, it is a cool story. I mean, Mount Carmel, anytime you get to preach on that, you're rocking. 
friends, is there any doubt whether it matters to God if our hearts are fully committed? Is there any doubt from this showdown on the mountaintop as to whether or not it matters if I really live my life sold out, dedicated to God day in and day out? If he's my, always my first priority, like, above all else, Elijah says, we don't want to be a people on the wrong side of that equation. It's serious business. We want to pe- be a people who walk with God. We want to be a people who strive to go deeper and deeper and deeper and continue to give more and more and more of ourselves. And yes, you need to do that individually, but you can't just do it on your own. You need to be part of a people to do that. That's why Elijah called the whole nation back. He knew that he could not just stand alone anymore. He had to be part of a people. And we are the same today. And when we make that commitment, I'll end with this. Four truths are going to emerge in your individual lives. They're going to emerge in our communal life. And they're going to emerge for the world to see. Four things. First of all, those who are in the will of God are invincible. Because God is invincible. When you are in doubt, you flip your Bible open to 1 Kings and you read the scene on Mount Carmel and wonder, hmm, is there anything happening in my life that is too big for God to take care of? Is there anything that I should be putting some more water on? A second, a third time? Because there's nothing that God can't do. Even in the most threatening, hopeless circumstance, if you are in the will of God, if we as his people are in the will of God, we have nothing and no one who can intimidate us, who can cause us fear, who can cause us shame, anything. We are invincible. Elijah was outnumbered and he was outranked. The king had a higher ranking than him. And yet Elijah put his trust in the power ranking of God and said, that's who's invincible. Second truth, and this one's hard, I think, for us today, but divided allegiance, which is what they had in Israel at the time, and a lot of tolerance is the same to God as idol worship. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not today. Tolerance is our, is tolerance. easiest thing to do when you're outnumbered is to assume the middling non-committal stance of commitment like sit on that fence the easiest thing to do when you're outnumbered is to join in even if it's quietly in your silence with the masses and i'm not saying be an be an intolerant hateful uh you know bible thumping kind of people. That's not what I'm talking about. But straddling the fence and tolerance for the sake of self-preservation is the same as outright idolatry, worshiping Baal, having an Asherah pole in your backyard in God's eyes. And Elijah hit that head on with the people and said, guys, you choose now. If, If you say Baal is real, then go all in. 
But if God's real, then you go all in. And that's not popular in our society. And that is challenging to navigate. Okay? I, I'm with you on that 100%. We have perhaps, tolerance is perhaps our biggest, biggest mountain in our society right now. Because we have to navigate that well as God's people. We have to be a people who continue to say that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that there is no other God, there is no other way to him but through his son, Jesus Christ. And we have to love people in the midst of all that. And we have to be gracious. Remember, God didn't wipe out King Ahab. Three years he spent with the guy. Three years. And in the end, he still didn't wipe him out. He made him look like an idiot. But God is a God of mercy and grace. His end game is not to have people wiped out. His end game is to bring them into a relationship. Which leads me to the third principle, the third truth. The most effective resource for God's people is always what? Elijah did it twice in that scene at unexpected times. Prayer, 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 prayer. No matter who confronts you, no matter what confronts you, no matter what subject confronts you, no matter what circumstance confronts you, prayer needs to be our first response. We've talked about it a lot this year at Jericho. We want to be a people where prayer is our first response. That's why this faith training idea that we saw in Elijah last week is so key. Remember all that pomp and all that circumstance of those 450 false prophets from morning to night, I mean, cutting themselves and everything. And then Elijah steps up and what does he do? One simple prayer. Timely, effective, powerful, and boom. He knew who God was. He knew what God wanted from his people, and so he just prayed to that end. Could he have done any of that? No, he couldn't have done that on his own. So he prays. Never underestimate that, friends. You think you're in an impossible conversation. You think you're going into an impossible situation. Man, these people are out to get you. This... This is coming against you. This is, pray. And when you can't, you call the nation. You call the people. You get on the email, prayer at jerichoridge.com. It comes to me, it goes to Katie. You get on the line. You call the elders. You call your friends. You call the people of Jericho and say, I'm done. I need someone to pray with me. Or for me. Come. This is impossible. Remind me who God is. Remind me that with him I'm, not inv- I'm invincible. Nothing can come against me. The most effective resource we have, friends, is prayer. And lastly, never underestimate the power of one life. One Elijah. One normal guy called by God. Let alone a community let alone 150 of us. Pastor Rick Warren says, God always uses imperfect people in imperfect situations to accomplish what? His perfect will. That's how he's designed things. Elijah was an imperfect human being, just like me, just like you, but he was dedicated to God in every facet of life. And as a result, 
2,900 years later, we're here talking about him. And we're here talking about his God. The same God that he called out to from generations before of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we say, and of Elijah. And, and, and maybe 2,000 years from now, generations will be saying, and of Jericho. Never underestimate. Sometimes it just takes one, an entire generation, to reset the course for God's glory. 